morning. Glad you're here with us or with us online. It's great to have you out in the tent as well. Today is a special day for um, a couple, some people that are not really um, known to us. Say the word with me, Noruz. Noruz. It's Persian and Afghan New Year. Um, and so here's what's going on. You know that we've been working with about 100 Afghan uh, refugees because of the crisis that happened in Afghanistan months ago now. And um, I want to just take a moment because of over 50 of them, of the 100, are invited by Kayvon, our global guy, and he's taken them to um, an, Iranian, an Iranian Christian church, a sister church of ours that we've done a lot of stuff with. They're all going to be there this morning at 10 in five minutes. So if you would just pray for, pray for them as I pray for them and pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the chance to gather and there are so many things about celebrations around the world that we don't even, they kind of come and go and we don't even really know. But this Nowruz celebration is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to expose some folks to the love of Christ. And so we pray for the service over at Iranian Christian Church that it would be empowered by your spirit. It would be a celebration of your love and joy and that many people would have um, first-time experiences with you and be drawn towards your kindness and your grace. God, we want to um, do that same thing here in terms of our opening our eyes and ears to uh, the example of Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would use um, our time together to change us and uh, to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thanks. Pray for that. Even if you get bored with me, just pray for them. It's hard to imagine as we've now spent our third week in the temptation of Christ. Now, most of the time when, this, when you preach through Matthew or Luke or Mark, it's in the three uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you would just spend a week on that, or you, as you read it, you wouldn't slow down. We've intentionally slowed down because we think that there's more than just a narrative here. There's an example for us to follow when we deal with temptations. And also, maybe almost as important, is there's insight into temptation that will help us. And so it's, it's hard to imagine in the first century, somewhere probably around 60 A.D., we know Matthew was written before 70 A.D., 70 AD is the fall of the temple, and Matthew doesn't mention the, the temple's destruction. He also mentions Sadducees still functioning, and the Sadducees were wiped out in 70 AD as well. So um, we know that it was early, a very early gospel, and in that gospel, the audience was primarily Jewish. And so when they heard this temptation story, they would have immediately been taken back to the beginnings of their people's history. The, the, and it began mostly with a confrontation between Satan and Adam and Eve. And it was a colossal failure, it talked about in Genesis 3. And yet when they heard this, they see how Christ responds. We can't imagine the joy that they must have thought and felt when they saw that Christ actually handled this thing in a different way. It probably built their hopes up that possibly he is the Messiah and then they would have said, ah, oh, he's not the kind of Messiah we were really hoping for. That's another story. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. We've been through the first seven verses of this story, and now we're at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
Now, we're going to spend some more time in just a minute talking about the devil and his character. Um, but he takes him, this is the third temptation that we know of. He takes him to a very high mountain, Jesus, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. That's a very high mountain. And he shows them their splendor. This is a very important word, splendor, because if you really understand what's going on here, you're seeing the, the nature of the temptation that Jesus is going through. This word for splendor comes from a word in Greek called doxa, which means glory. And what's happening is, is that the irony of this temptation is that the devil's test here is an offer to Jesus that he would receive splendor that he would receive glory. But of course, we, he already has it. In Hebrews chapter one, it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus already is in a plan where he's gonna get all the glory of the Father and sit down at God's right hand. But Satan comes in and says, I'm gonna give it to you in a different way. I'll give this to you, he says, Satan says, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, Rodney Reeves, who's a theologian who wrote a commentary on Matthew, he says this, Satan's offer is based on the presumption that this is the way God works. Worship me and I'll give you stuff. And we are, we are, if we must admit, we are infected by that same disease. Some of you came to church today saying, I, got, I need a good week next week. And you're thinking that this will somehow appease an angry God who's out to get you. All this I will give you. Craig Bloomberg, another scholar of the New Testament, says this, Satan regularly tempts Christians in the same way with the success syndrome, empire building, or alleged guarantees of health and wealth. But the devil's price is damning. He requires nothing short of selling one's soul in worshiping him. Whatever joy and power he can offer vanishes at death. Jesus says to Satan after this offer of all that he can see if he would just bow down and worship. The only imperative command in all of the scriptures of this temptation, Jesus says, away, away, get, would be the Southern way of saying it, get on. Away from me, Satan, for it is written. And again, on the, for the third time, he faces these temptations by a quotation from the Old Testament, this one out of Deuteronomy chapter six, where it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And in my imagination, we, I don't have any basis for this, they had a banquet feast as he broke fast of 40 days with the angels attending him. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about temptation. I know we've talked about it for a couple of weeks, but I'd like to do that again. I'd like to talk to you about the reality of Satan, because I think sometimes we misunderstand who he is. And then I'd like to talk to you a little bit about his strategy, because I think there's some common things that happen in this story that are linked to other Satan stories that kind of show some patterns for us. 
Now, temptation is like if you can imagine you're on a road trying to stay on the road with God, temptation, see temptation as an exit ramp off the road with God. Imagine a space shuttle, and the space shuttle can't leave the Earth's atmosphere without a giant help, a booster rocket that's actually bigger than the shuttle itself. We tend to think that God is in our lives to kind of serve as a booster rocket for us, to help us to get to places that we want to go, and then once we get there, we'll scuttle the, the booster thing and then do it on our own, and we'll land with all the glory of ourselves in the shuttle without the help of the booster. Next slide, there you go. So we tend to kind of think this, and temptation is this great temptation that we can be great. We're so immersed in the achievement culture of our day that we don't even recognize how much this affects us. God did not come, an author, Kent Hughes, says, God does, did not and does not come to the self-sufficient. Christianity began and always begins with a spirit of need. We don't like that. We don't mind admitting that we've got to have a booster rocket for every time, every little bit of time that we need some help, but we like the fact that we can fly on our own. And the third temptation is that I must become great. I must become more than I presently am. It's almost like FOMO. It's almost like if I follow God too closely, I'll miss out on something. This shows up in all kinds of ways in my life. This is uncomfortable, but I'll go ahead and share it. First one's not as uncomfortable because you've heard it before. I enter into a state of mind when I get behind the wheel of a car, that is basically this, and I'm not kidding. See if any of you can relate. I am the greatest driver that has ever experienced forward motion on wheels. And I am a perfect judge of everyone else's ability to drive. Now, I know this is kind of funny, but do you see the subtlety in this? I set myself up as king of the road. And they actually have the audacity to pull into my lane. Because this is my highway created for me. And I spend 35 minutes driving to church in this state of mind. Who in the bleep are you to be on the road with me? Now, I've, I get this. When I come to church on Sundays and I'm preaching, I let Dana drive. Because then I'm only guilty of judging one person. But this shows up all over my life. And it's in my thought life. I'll come to church. I didn't, I didn't shoot the finger at anybody. I didn't say anything in it about anybody. I didn't make an expression. I may have sighed. I may have just been, how can these little people, who sells them cars anyway? 
It is a radical individualism that sets myself up as sole judge and king. And this shows up all over the place. Let me talk you through my year so far. You guys know that I had COVID early on, and it, that was, you know, like, I don't know, not fun. Then I came back, and we began the transition of putting Jay in place as a senior leader. And uh, so one of the very first things that happened was Jay said, um, we need your office. We're going to move you around. And I was like, sure, I mean, you know, sure, that's okay. And then he said, and we're going to change your title. We need to change your title so there's no confusion. And I said, yeah, that's okay. Whatever you want. And then baptisms came. And you may not know this, but I absolutely love baptisms. They're just one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. And so unless someone requests someone else to do their baptism, I dunk them. I'm the primary dunker. And I have been for 21 years. Until three weeks ago when Jay dunked and I sat right over there. And then the following week, we did uh, parent-child dedications. And he called me during the week before and he said, hey, when you do the prayer, what do you usually say? I want to make sure that I'm doing it kind of like you did. And I realized I'm not going to pray for the parents and the kids anymore. Now, I would like to tell you, now, first of all, let me say this. I agree with all those decisions, and they were absolutely right. But let me also tell you that I had a very ungodly response to people being baptized. There for a small second, I was like, wait, that's my tank. That's my job. And the temptation of Satan is to take something that I actually agree with, I wholeheartedly think it's the right decision, and I embrace it with all of my being, and I can, inside of me and my thought processes, I can begin to dismantle God's will so that I am great, and I get back into the limelight. Folks, this temptation is so subtle that you many times won't even know it, but I'm going to tell you, it is so ugly when you see it. And discipleship, in other words, apprenticing after Jesus, is about the sovereignty of the king in your life and mine. And if we are not willing to bow to him, we will bow to me. Or you, we will buy all to self. And Satan will win. You lay the personal autonomy and the direction of your life and all that God has, you lay it at the feet of the cross. And revival starts, if you're praying for revival, revival starts when those who claim to know Jesus start acting like it. And as we act like it, then people will be drawn to Jesus. Now, a few more things about temptation. The way that this gets 
Um, it's, it's confusing and it's difficult to discern, and here's why. God uses but not causes troubles to teach us to trust. If you're not, you need to take a picture of this slide, some of you do, because God uses not causes but uses troubles. He doesn't have to cause troubles in your life. You're super good at making your own. And he's calling you and I to trust him in the midst of trouble. He causes, he uses but not causes temptation to teach us to obey. If we will obey at temptation, then sin has no um, action for us. Because temptation itself is not the sin. It's the temptation, it's the seeing the exit ramp to get off with, with, of the will of God and take it and instead know you stay on road. And he uses but not causes to teach us, temptation to teach us to obey. And God uses but not causes the trespasses of others to help us to forgive. And this is, this is, this is the graduate program of following after Christ. I know that's a downer. I know some of y'all are like, what about the like joy and peace and, that all comes, but you learn joy and peace this way, through troubles, temptation, and trespasses of others. And God uses those things. Doesn't cause them, but he's so great that he can take our mistakes and turn them for good. James 1, Romans 5, over and over again, there's purpose behind the stuff we go through. That was an edited statement. There's, there's purposes behind it. Because he can use them to trust, for us to tr learn to trust, obey, and forgive. All right. Let me swap, let me change a little bit here and talk to you about the reality of the devil. When I was a football coach, um, and, and some of you may not know, I was a public school teacher and a high school football coach in Texas for eight years. And I felt like my job is that I was a defensive coordinator, and my job was to teach my defensive players as much as I could about the opposing offense. Because I felt like the better they can recognize and understand what they're trying to do to us, the better they can defense this. And I know some of y'all are like, get off the sports analogy. I'm just telling you, this, this plays out. Because I believe that Satan, his reality, most of us don't understand what's going on with him. And they, we, we kind of tend to dismiss him. 37 times in the New Testament, the word devil or Satan is used. And a ton of it is by Christ. Here's how Jesus talked about um, the enemy, Satan. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires, the devil's desires. He's a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Constantly, there's, there's a cohort of demonic forces that are constantly bombarding us with things that are lies. And basically, the, the, uh, the lie that comes from this whole temptation is, Jesus, don't follow God's, the Father's way because he's holding out on you. He is not good. He is not good. You cannot trust him. He is not good. And that lie rings in our ears all the time as well. The forces of pride and hate and fear in the world are enormously powerful. I think everyone would agree. 
And they are incredibly complex. I think everyone would agree with that too. And the Bible says one thing about all of these forces of pride and hate and fear that some of us don't believe. And that is that they are intelligent. There is an intelligence behind. There, is a, there, are, there are strategies behind the forces of evil. Now, it could have been that Putin just woke up one day and said, let's go for Ukraine. Or it could have been way more sinister than that. There could be demonic forces behind it. Now, why is this important? Well, here's one reason that's super important. If in your worldview you do not have an understanding of spiritual forces of darkness and evil, then you must blame humans for all of the darkness and evil. And so your view of human nature has to be incredibly low if all of the junk we see going on is just because we're stupid. You understand what I'm saying? There's, there's actually this whole idea about the devil made me do it. There's actually something to that. It's a bit of a cop-out in some ways. But it also helps us in that we understand some of what is going on. The other thing that's going on is that theologically, Jesus speaks a ton about enemies in the spiritual realm. And if you don't think that that's a possibility, then you're basically saying Jesus didn't really understand what he was talking about, so he was wrong, or Jesus was just a product of his time, and he, we're so much more sophisticated now. We understand that that's not really how it goes down. And so you basically end up with two extremes, one of the other. One would be an, a very unhealthy overinterest, an overinterest of what's going on in the spiritual realm. And you just, this extreme, you can advance the slide, this extreme uh, would be, see, when y'all ain't listening, you, nobody knows. But when they ain't listening, somebody knows. Anyway, you have this unhealthy underinterest of what's going on. And basically, you've got, you almost cartoonish about evil. There's a, there's a good angel and a bad angel on my shoulders. And some days I listen to the dude in red. And some days I listen to the dude with wings. And, and depending on who I'm listening to at the time, that's the way it goes. And it's just almost haphazard and just sophomoric, to be honest with you. And the other, the other one is an unhealthy overinterest where everything is demonic. You have a flat tire, it's demonic. Your, your car breaks down, it's demonic. You're late to an appointment, it's demonic. You're, it's just, it, everything that goes on, you're late to your appointment because it's demonic. Here's an idea, leave earlier. <laughs> Avoid nails in the road. I mean, you know, I don't know, but just it, it, sometimes actually there might be satanic forces behind that, but other times you're, you're actually giving too much credit. He's, Jesus, uh, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not everywhere at once, and he doesn't know everything. How do I, it, this is easy. Satan, demons rejoiced at the death of Christ. We know that. Well, they don't know nothing then. Because that was just, that, that's when Jesus just got through kicking their butt. 
Satan just lost. Sin was just paid for. One last thing about Satan. This is out of Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who, received, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He is a defeated foe that will one day be vanquished. And just right after that, it says that Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the order of things has passed away. All right, we got to haul through this last part. I think that there's some parallels that if we'll pay attention to them, we will actually begin to understand the strategy of temptation to try to pull you away from God in your life. Now, how do I get that? Well, first, let me read a quote from Dallas Willard. It's a longer quote, so stay with me. Ideas and images are according, accordingly the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for mankind. Ideas and images, not actions. Ideas and images. Thus, when he undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was with the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. This is the basic idea in back of all temptation. God is presented as depriving us by his commands of what is good. The single most important thing in our minds, the single most important thing in our minds is our idea of God and the associated images. Now, this is the way it falls out. Now, this chart's gonna be maybe confusing. You can take a picture of it and go back over it later. But it basically, we see Satan show up as a tempter in the Genesis 3 story of Adam and Eve and in the, the temptation of Christ here. And it's explained in 1 John chapter 2 as all that is in the world. And then it, it makes this amazing statement. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of, of life is not from the Father, but is of this world. Now, what I would suggest to you is those three categories, broad categories, are how temptation works in our lives. In Matthew 4, the temptation was turn the stone to bread. Lust of the flesh, good for food. In Genesis chapter 3, it, it said when, when Eve saw the fruit, it was good for food. And it's about consumption and providing for ourselves to provide to do something apart from the will of God. And then the second one says, the second temptation was throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. This is the lust of the eyes in 1 John or in Genesis 3, it's the, it was pleasing to the eye that you will, see, you will seem you, like a celebrity. And this is, I have to go my own way. I can't trust the process of God. It's too slow and too hard. And I'd rather be in control than, than let God rescue me. 
And then this temptation is that just bow down and worship me and you can have it all. This is a boastful pride of life from 1 John 2. Or in Genesis 3, it's that it, it was desirable because you could be like God. You could gain wisdom and be like God. And this boastful pride of life says, I gotta, have, I gotta exalt myself. And you'd rather be magnified than crucified. Now, here's, here's how it works. Is that each of us, each of us is susceptible to all of these kinds of temptations, but each of us probably can identify one temptation that's prominent in our lives at this time. And you can, just to be aware of that would be great. That if you, if, is it lust of the flesh? Is it to do something apart from the will of God? Is it lust of the eyes? Is it to have something apart from the will of God? Or is it to be something, this boastful pride of life that says exalt yourself? This strategy lays itself out, and you can see it in Matthew, in Luke as well, in 1 John 2, in Genesis chapter 3, there seems to be a strategy of the weaknesses of where Satan's going to attack. Can he do other things? Absolutely. But these three seem to be prominent. And if you could identify as you're sitting there now thinking through, what am I most susceptible to? Now, let me go to what do we do now, and we'll close it up. Again, from Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he says this, the, their aim, our Christian aim, is not to avoid sin, but to avoid temptation. Not to avoid sin, but to back it up a little bit more and avoid temptation. And folks, this is not my nature. My nature is to go as close to temptation as I can and then say, okay, I'm not really going to go, and then I get myself in farther than I should, and then I screw it up. Listen to this quote. One has to strongly want to not want what one now wants and to want to want what one does not want. Let me read it to you again. One has to strongly want to not want what one now wants and then to want to want what one does not want now. In other words, it's okay if you don't want that, but you gotta want to want it and leave the rest to God. So here's some things. And this, this will be how we'll finish it up. What do you do now? I'm gonna give you some specific stuff. First, first there's four truths that if, in order to understand, understand uh, temptation, you've gotta get this. God does not tempt. God does not tempt. So if you're sitting there going, you know, yeah, God's just putting me through too much. That's just too much. No, he's not. God does not tempt. James 1 13 and 14, when you're tempting, no one should say, God is tempting me. Secondly, Jesus understands and forgives. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet who did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace and throne of God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace it to help us in our time of need. So does, God does not tempt. Jesus understands and forgives. No temptation is too hard. This is a bummer. You all aren't gonna like this verse. If you've not seen this verse, you're not gonna like it because what I have heard many, many times is it was just too much. 
I mean, I, it, it just was there, Steve. It was there, and I, it was just click away. Just a click away. It was too much. Like, who can resist a click? 1 Corinthians says that no temptation's overtaken you except what is common. And also, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to endure. But in fact, he'll give you a way of escape so that you can get out of it. That just blows away all of your lame, beep excuses. God does not tempt. He understands and forgives. No temptation is too hard. And then Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus is greater than the evil forces that try to disrupt our world. Jesus is greater than the temptations that are bombarding you each day. He himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to come to our aid. He, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. All right. P.T. Forsyth said this, another kind of confusing quote, but you'll get it. Unless there is within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. Spiritual health is not the absence of temptation. Even Jesus faced temptation. It is shortening the gap between recognizing the temptation and leaving it. That's, that's what maturity is. It's not the absence. You're never going to have a time in your life where there's zero temptation. But when you recognize it, how long does it take for you to say, get out, away, get on? Dallas Willard has this amazing concept about temptation. He says that we need to not show hospitality to it. You see a temptation, oh, yeah, come on in. Let's have a drink. No, no, no. No hospitality to temptation. Now, in the midst of trying to figure out, figuring what you maybe believe, I'm, I have to provide for myself. I have to go my own way. I have to become great. I, I, will, I will let you know, I've, I've, I've taught this passage before, and it's almost, it's consistently every time my primary temptation is I have to provide for myself. God's not going to do it. I got to do it. Now, I'm not saying I don't, I go my own way too. And I think I should be great. I already told you about the, the embarrassing thing about what happens when people get baptized here. How, I, don't know, I don't know how to explain that. I'm ashamed of it. But my primary temptation is I have to provide for myself. So, knowing that, there are, first, I need you to know and understand something first before we get to this slide. I need, I need to let you know that immediately when I confessed and repented of my baptism sin, Let's just call it that for now and then forget about it after this. Just put it out of your mind. Um, and no matter where you have been, no matter how many times you have said, I'll never go back, and then you went back, no matter how many times, I'll never do that again, and you did it again, no matter how many times you have forfeited the future for your own pleasure at the moment, because one of the primary idols of our life is to feel good. 
One of the best things is to feel good, we think. So we have made bad decisions to help us feel good. Know this. Romans 8 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor any temptation, I'll just throw that in there, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from it. Nothing. You've not gone somewhere that you're now forfeit out or you gotta do some special penance to get back. You just need to lean into the forgiveness of Jesus. And tell him, God, I was all concerned about me when you were bringing people to yourself and helping them make decisions to follow you in baptism. It was all about me. It's all about me. I'm really sorry. And God, if the next time I get to view baptisms here, would it be with a purer heart where I really think about them and you instead of me? Forgiven. Now, I'm still a little bit tweaked about that evil in me, but Jesus didn't. It's gone. And it can be for you too. Men and women, it can be. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, this is the old football coach in me. I want you to be able to, we've got cards for you, and they're up here, and they are on the way out at the back on the sides. And when you go, you've got a little reminder of the Matthew series, but on this side, this is the side that I want you to, first, there's a lie. The lie is I must provide for myself. I have to provide. And then there's a truth underneath it. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, were, are you not much more valuable than they? And you just replace that thought of I gotta provide for myself. You just replace that thought with the word of Jesus, that he has declared a truth over you. Maybe it's the second lie. I have to go my own way. I've got to look out for myself. I've got to make sure that I do that. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Jesus himself didn't want to go that way either, but he said this, yet not my will, but yours be done. And then that can become your prayer as you face that temptation. And then last lie is I have to become great. And in Matthew 10, Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And you replace you replace the lie with a truth. Listen, the battle is in your mind. You don't, you don't feel your way to proper action. You think your way there. You renew your mind with the lie that comes in with the truth of Jesus. It says, this is what, this is what I declare about you. You're worth more than you can ever imagine. I'll walk with you through the hardest times because if you're in the hard times, I'll sustain you in it. I'll help you find your life. The life I have for you is the abundant life, or as the Bible calls it, it's the life that's really life. So grab one of these cards, put it somewhere you can see it, and replace the thoughts. Do battle in your mind. That temptation, the exit ramp that's pulling you off, you'll just drive right by and stay right in the center of God's will for you. Let's pray.
Jesus, thanks for submitting yourself to putting on flesh and bone and modeling for us what it looks like to interact with temptation and to have victory over it. You did it perfectly. We won't. But we'd like to do it better. So can the example that you've offered give us hope, give us a strategy, give us courage to follow your will? And God, I ask that if there's anybody in the room or within the sound of my voice, listening online or in the tent, and they're certain that they've gone beyond your grace. They're certain that you wouldn't forgive them for what they've done maybe the hundredth time. Will you help them to see the extent of your grace and that nothing can separate them from your love that is in Christ? We thank you for that reality. We thank you for Jesus and we pray in his name.